producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. All we do must have the single aim of crippling the power of the ruling elites in the hopes of new systems of governance that can implement the radical reforms to save us and the world. The most difficult existential dilemma we face is to at once acknowledge the bleakness before us and act, to refuse to succumb to cynicism and despair. That's Chris Hedges, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Chris Hedges on Beyond the Politics of Despair. Despair, we all experience it. It can lead to demoralization. What's the antidote? Engagement. Finding kindred spirits and acting collectively. Building bonds of solidarity. Working toward the common good. John Lewis, longtime Georgia congressperson and civil rights icon, had this advice. Do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It's the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. Our guest today is Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author. He spoke at the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, in mid-October 2020. And now, Chris Hedges. The physical and moral decay of the United States and the malaise it has spawned have predictable results. We have seen in varying forms the consequences of social and political collapse during the twilight of the Greek and Roman empires, the Ottoman and Habsburg empires, Tsarist Russia, Weimar Germany, and the former Yugoslavia. Voices from the past, Aristotle, Cicero, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Joseph Roth, and Mila Vangelis warned us. But blinded by self-delusion and hubris, as if we are somehow exempt from human experience and human nature, we refuse to listen. The United States is a shadow of itself. It squanders its resources in futile military adventurism, a symptom of all empires in decay, as they attempt to restore a lost hegemony by force. Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, tens of millions of lives wrecked, failed states, enraged fanatics, We are piling up massive deficits, $3.1 trillion, while neglecting our basic infrastructure, including electrical grids, roads, bridges, and public transportation, to spend more on our military than all the other major powers on Earth combined. 
We are the world's largest producer and exporter of arms and munitions. The virtues we argue that we have a right to impose by force on others, human rights, democracy, the free market, the rule of law, and personal freedoms are mocked at home. Where grotesque levels of social inequality and austerity programs have impoverished most of the public, destroyed democratic institutions, including Congress, the courts, and the press, and created militarized forces of internal occupation that carry out wholesale surveillance of the public, run the largest prison system in the world, and gun down unarmed citizens in the streets with impunity. The American burlesque, darkly humorous, with its absurdities of Donald Trump, fake ballot boxes, conspiracy theorists who believe the deep state and Hollywood run a massive child sex trafficking ring, Christian fascists that place their faith in magic Jesus and teach creationism as science in our schools, 10-hour-long voting lines in states such as Georgia, militia members planning to kidnap the governors of Michigan and Virginia to start a civil war, is also ominous, especially as we ignore the accelerating ecocide. All of our activism, protests, lobbying, petitions, appeals to the United Nations, the work of NGOs, and misguided trust in liberal politicians such as Barack Obama have been accompanied by a 60% rise in global carbon emissions since 1990. Estimates predict another 40% rise, almost all of it baked into the system, in global emissions in the next decade. That means we are less than a decade away from carbon dioxide levels reaching 450 parts per million, the equivalent to a two degrees Celsius average temperature rise, a global catastrophe that will make parts of the earth uninhabitable, flood coastal cities, dramatically reduce crop yields, and result in suffering and death for billions of people. This is what is coming, and we can't wish it away. I speak to you from Troy, New York, once the second largest producer of iron in the country after Pittsburgh. It was once an industrial hub for the garment industry, a center for the production of shirts, shirtwaists, collars, and cuffs, and was once home to foundries that made bells and firms that crafted precision instruments. All that is gone, of course, leaving behind the post-industrial decay, the urban blight, and the shattered lives and despair that are sadly familiar in most cities in the United States. It is this despair that is killing us, it eats into the social fabric, rupturing social bonds, and manifests itself in an array of self-destructive and aggressive pathologies. It fosters what the anthropologist Roger Lancaster calls poisoned solidarity, the communal intoxication forged 
from the negative energies of fear, suspicion, envy, and the lust for vengeance and violence. Nations in terminal decline embrace, as Sigmund Freud understood, the death instinct, no longer sustained by the comforting illusion of inevitable human progress. They lose the only antidote to nihilism. No longer able to build, they confuse destruction with creation. They descend into an atavistic savagery, something not only Freud but Joseph Conrad and Primo Levi knew lurks beneath the thin veneer of civilized society. Reason does not guide our lives. Reason, as Schopenhauer puts it, echoing Hume, is the hard-pressed servant of the will. Men are not gentle creatures who want to be loved and who, at the most, can defend themselves if they are attacked, Freud wrote. They are, on the contrary, creatures among whose instinctual endowments is to be reckoned a powerful share of aggressiveness. As a rule, this cruel aggressiveness waits for some provocation or puts itself at the service of some other purpose whose goal might also have been reached by milder means. In circumstances that are favorable to it, when the mental counterforces which ordinarily inhibit it are out of action, it also manifests itself spontaneously and reveals man as a savage beast to whom consideration towards his own kind is something alien. Freud, like Primo Levi, got it. The moral life is largely a matter of circumstances. Moral consideration, as I, as I saw in the wars I covered, usually disappears in moments of extremity. It is too often the luxury of the privileged. Ten percent of any population is cruel no matter what, and ten percent is merciful no matter what, and the remaining eighty percent can be moved in either direction, Susan Sontag said. To survive, it was necessary... Primo Levi wrote of life in the death camps to throttle all dignity and kill all conscience, to climb down into the arena as a beast against other beasts, to let oneself be guided by those unsuspected subterranean forces which sustain families and individuals in cruel times. It was, he wrote, a Hobbesian life, a continuous war of everyone against everyone, Social collapse will bring these latent pathologies to the surface. But the fact that circumstances can reduce us to savagery does not negate the moral life. As our empire implodes, and with it social cohesion, as the earth increasingly punishes us for our refusal to honor and protect the systems that give us life, triggering a scramble for diminishing natural resources sources and huge climate migrations, we must face this darkness, not only around us, but within us. The dance macabre is already underway. Hundreds of thousands of Americans die each year from opioid overdoses, alcoholism, and suicide suicide 
what sociologists call deaths of despair. This despair fuels high rates of morbid obesity, perhaps 40% of the public, gambling addictions, the pornification of the society with the ubiquitous images of sexual sadism, along with the proliferation of armed right-wing militias and nihilistic mass shootings. And as despair mounts, so will these acts of self-immolation. Those overwhelmed by despair seek magical solutions, whether in crisis cults such as the Christian right or demagogues such as Trump or rage-filled militias that see violence as a cleansing agent. As long as these dark pathologies are allowed to fester and grow, and the Democratic Party has made it clear it will not enact the kinds of radical social reforms that will curb these pathologies, the United States will continue its march towards disintegration and social upheaval. And removing Trump will neither halt nor slow the dissent. An estimated 300,000 Americans will be dead from the COVID-19 pandemic by December, a figure that is expected to rise to 400,000 in January. Chronic underemployment and unemployment, close to 20%, when those who have stopped looking for work, those furloughed with no prospect of being rehired, and those who work part-time but are still below the poverty line are included in the official statistics instead of being magically erased from the unemployment rolls. Our privatized health care system, which is making record profits during the pandemic, is not designed to cope with a public health emergency. It is designed to maximize profits for its owners. There are fewer than one million hospital beds in the United States, a result of the decades-long trend of hospital mergers and closures that have reduced access to care in communities across the country. Cities such as Milwaukee have been forced to erect field hospitals. In states such as Mississippi, there are no longer any ICU beds available. The for-profit health care service did not stockpile the ventilators, masks, tests, or drugs to deal with the pandemic. Why should it? This is not a route to increased revenue. Forty-eight percent of frontline workers remain ineligible for sick pay. Some 43 million Americans have lost their employee-sponsored health insurance. There are 10,000 bankruptcies a day, with perhaps two-thirds of them tied to exorbitant medical costs. Food banks are overrun with tens of thousands of desperate families. Roughly 10 to 14 million renter households, that's between 23 and 24 million people, were behind on their rent in September. That amounts to 12 to $17 billion in unpaid rent. And that figure is expected to rise to $34 billion in past due rent by January. 
lifting of the moratorium on evictions and foreclosures will mean that millions of families, many destitute, will be tossed into the street. Hunger in U.S. households almost tripled between 2019 and August of this year, according to the Census Bureau and the Department of Agriculture. The proportion of American children who did not have enough to eat, the study found, is 14 times higher than it was last year. And a study by Columbia University found that since May, there are 8 million more Americans who can be classified as poor. Meanwhile, the 50 richest Americans hold as much wealth as half of the United States, while millennials, some 72 million people, have 4.6% of the U.S. wealth. Only one thing matters to the corporate state. It is not democracy. It is not truth. It is not the consent of the governed. It is not income inequality. It is not the surveillance state. It is not endless war. It is not jobs. It is not the climate crisis. It is the primacy of corporate power, which has extinguished our democracy, taken from us our most basic civil liberties, and left most of the working class in misery, and the increase and consolidation of its wealth and power. In America, we are only permitted to vote against what we hate. Partisan media outlets set one group against another, a consumer version of what George Orwell in his novel 1984 called The Two Minutes of Hate. Our opinions and prejudices are skillfully catered to and reinforced with the aid of a detailed digital analysis of our proclivities and habits and then sold back to us. The result, as Matt Taibbi writes, is packaged anger just for you. The public unable to speak across the manufactured divide. Politics under the assault is atrophied into a tawdry reality show centered on manufactured political personalities. Civic discourse has been poisoned by invective and lies. Power, meanwhile, is left unexamined and unchallenged. Political coverage is modeled, as Taibbi points out, on sports coverage. The sets look like the sets on Sunday NFL countdown. The anchor is on one side. There are four commentators, two from each team. Graphics keep us updated on the score. Political identities are reduced to easily digestible stereotypes. Tactic, strategy, image, the monthly tallies of campaign contributions and polling are endlessly examined while real political issues are ignored. It is, of course, the language and imagery of war. This kind of coverage masks the fact that on nearly all the major issues, the two ruling political parties are in complete agreement. The deregulation of the financial industry, trade agreements, the militarization of the police, 
and the Pentagon has transferred more than $7.4 billion in excess military gear and hardware to nearly 8,000 federal and state law enforcement agencies since 1990. The explosion in the prison population, deindustrialization, austerity, support for fracking and the fossil fuel industry, the endless wars in the Middle East, the bloated military budget, the control of elections and mass media by corporations, and the wholesale government surveillance of the population. And when the government watches you 24 hours a day, you cannot use the word liberty. This is the relationship of a master and a slave. All have bipartisan support. And for this reason, these issues are almost never discussed. The goal is to set demographic against demographic. The stoking of antagonism is not, however, news. It is entertainment, driven not by journalism but marketing strategies to increase viewership and corporate sponsors. News divisions are corporate revenue streams competing against other corporate revenue streams. The template for news, as Taibbi writes in his book, Hate, Inc., the cover of which has Sean Hannity on one side and Rachel Maddow on the other, is the simplified morality play used in professional wrestling. There are only two real political positions in the United States. You love Trump or you hate him. The Democrats and their liberal apologists adopt tolerant positions on issues regarding race, religion, immigration, women's rights, and sexual identity, and pretend this is politics. But these issues are societal or ethical issues. They are important, but they are not social or political issues. The seizure of control of the economy by a class of global speculators and corporations has ruined the lives of the very groups the Democrats pretend to lift up. When Bill Clinton and the Democratic Party, for example, destroyed the old welfare system, 70% of the recipients were children. Those on the right of the political spectrum, and we must never forget that the positions of the Democratic Party would make it a far-right party in Europe, demonize those on the margins of society as scapegoats. The culture wars mask the reality. Both parties are full partners in the destruction of our democratic institutions. Both parties have reconfigured American society into a mafia state. It only depends on how you want it dressed up. The power of politicians such as Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Mitch McConnell comes from being able to funnel corporate money to anointed candidates. In a functioning political system, one not saturated with corporate cash, they would not hold power. They have transformed what the Roman philosopher Cicero called a commonwealth, a res publica, a public thing, or the property of a people, in, into an instrument of pillage and repression on behalf of a global corporate oligarchy. We are serfs ruled by the obscenely rich, 
omnipotent masters who loot the U.S. Treasury, pay little or no taxes, and have perverted the judiciary, the media, and the legislative branches of government to strip us of civil liberties and give them the freedom to engage in financial fraud and theft. In the midst of the pandemic, what did our ruling kleptocrats do? They looted $4 trillion on a scale unseen since the 2008 bailout overseen by Barack Obama and Biden. They gorged and enriched themselves at our expense while tossing crumbs out the windows of their private jets, yachts, penthouses, and palatial estates to the suffering and despised masses. The CARES Act handed trillions in funds or tax breaks to oil companies, the airline industry, which alone got $50 billion in stimulus money, the cruise ship industry, and gave a $170 billion windfall to the real estate industry. It handed subsidies to private equity firms, lobbying groups, whose political action committees have given some $200 million in campaign contributions to politicians in the last two decades, the meat industry, and corporations that have moved offshore to avoid paying U.S. taxes. The CARES Act allowed the largest corporations to gobble up money that was supposed to keep small businesses solvent to pay workers. It gave 80% of tax breaks under the stimulus package to millionaires and allowed the wealthiest to get stimulus checks that averaged $1.7 million. The CARES Act also authorized $454 billion for the Treasury Department's Exchange Stabilization Fund, a massive slush fund doled out by Trump cronies to corporations that, when leveraged 10 to 1, can be used to create a staggering $4.5 trillion in assets. The Act authorized the Fed to give $1.5 trillion in loans to Wall Street, which no one expects will ever be repaid. American billionaires have gotten $434 billion richer since the pandemic. Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, whose corporation Amazon paid no federal taxes last year alone, added nearly $72 billion to his personal wealth since the pandemic started. And during this same period, 55 million Americans lost their jobs. Now, the molding of the public into warring factions works commercially. It works politically. It destroys, as it is designed to do, class solidarity, but is also a recipe for social disintegration. It propels us towards the kind of Hobbesian world Primo Levi and Sigmund Freud warned us about. Political stagnation and corruption along with economic and social misery, spawn crisis cults, movements led by demagogues that prey on the unbearable psychological and financial distress and champion violence as a form of moral purification. 
These crisis cults already well established among followers of the Christian right, right-wing militia groups, and many of those who back Donald Trump, who look at him not so much as a politician but as a cult leader, all peddle magical thinking and an infantilism that promises if you surrender all autonomy, prosperity, restored national glory, a return to a mythical past, order, and security. For this reason, Trump is the symptom. He is not the disease. And if he leaves office, far more comp dangerous demagogues will rise if the social conditions are not radically improved to take his place. You're listening to Chris Hedges on Beyond the Politics of Despair. To place a credit card order for CDs of this program, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Our special book is by Noam Chomsky, Requiem for the American Dream. We're offering you, our listeners, written transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s free of charge of this program. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. I fear we are headed towards a Christianized fascism. The greatest moral failing of the liberal church, which I come out of, was, was its refusal, justified in the name of tolerance and dialogue, to denounce the followers of the Christian right as heretics. By tolerating the intolerant, it ceded religious legitimacy to an array of con artists, charlatans, and demagogues, along with their cultish supporters. It stood by as the core gospel message, concern for the poor and the oppressed, was perverted into a magic, magical world where God and Jesus showered believers with material wealth and power. The white race became God's chosen agent. Imperialism and war became divine instruments for purging the world of infidels and barbarians, evil itself. Capitalism, because God blessed the righteous with wealth and power and condemned the immoral to poverty and suffering became shorn of its inherent cruelty and exploitation. The iconography and symbols of American nationalism became intertwined with the iconography and symbols of the Christian faith. The megapastors, narcissists, who ruled despotic, cult-like fiefdoms, make millions of dollars by using this heretical belief system to prey on the despair and desperation of their congregations, victims of neoliberalism and deindustrialization. And these megapastors, champions of the unfettered greed, cult of masculinity, lust for violence, white supremacy, bigotry, American chauvinism, religious intolerance, anger, racism, and conspiracy theories that are at the core of the Christian right. When I wrote my book, American Fascists, the Christian Right, and the War on America, I was quite serious about the term fascist. 
Tens of millions of Americans live hermetically sealed inside the vast media and educational edifice erected by the Christian right. In this world, miracles are real. Satan, allied with liberal, secular humanists and the deep state, along with Muslims, immigrants, feminists, intellectuals, artists, and a host of other internal enemies, is seeking to destroy America. Trump's legacy will, I fear, be the empowerment of the Christian fascists. They are what comes next. For decades, the Christian fascists have been organizing to take power. They have built infrastructures and organizations, including lobbying groups, schools, colleges, and law schools, as well as media platforms to prepare. They have seated their cadre into positions of power. We, on the left, meanwhile, have seen our institutions and organizations destroyed or corrupted by corporate power and been seduced by the boutique activism of identity politics. FRC Action, the legislative affiliate of the Family Research Council, already gives 245 members of Congress a 100% approval rating for supporting legislation that is backed by the Christian right. Christian fascism is an emotional life raft for tens of millions of Americans. It is impervious to science and verifiable fact. The Christian fascists by choice have severed themselves from rational thought and the secular society that almost destroyed them and their families and thrust them into deep despair. We will not placate or disarm this movement bent on our destruction. By attempting to claim that we too have Christian values, this appeal only strengthens the legitimacy of Christian heretics and weakens our own. These dispossessed people will either be reintegrated into the economy and the society and their shattered social bonds mended, or the movement will grow more virulent and more powerful. The Christian right is determined to keep the public focus on societal or ethical as opposed to economic issues. The road to despotism is always paved with righteousness. All fascist movements paper over their squalid belief systems with the veneer of morality. They mouth pieties about restoring law and order, right and wrong, the sanctity of life, civic and family virtues, patriotism and tradition to mask their dismantling of the open society and silencing and persecution of those who dissent. Capitalism driven by the obsession to maximize profit and reduce the cost of labor by slashing workers' rights and wages is antithetical to the Christian gospel as well as the Enlightenment ethic of Immanuel Kant. But capitalism in the hands of the Christian fascists has become sacralized in the form of the prosperity gospel, the belief that Jesus came to minister to our material needs, blessing believers with wealth and power. The prosperity gospel is an ideological cover for the slow-motion corporate coup d'etat. And this is why large corporations such as Tyson Foods which places Christian right chaplains in its plants, Purdue, Walmart, 
and Sam's Warehouse, along with many other corporations, pour money into the movement and its institutions, such as Liberty University and Patrick Henry Law School. This is why corporations have given millions to groups such as the Judicial Crisis Network and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to campaign for Barrett's appointment to the court. Barrett has ruled to cheat gig workers out of overtime, greenlight fossil fuel extraction and pollution, gut Obamacare, and strip consumers of protection from corporate funds. Barrett, as a circuit court judge, heard at least 55 cases in which citizens challenged corporate abuse and fraud, and she ruled in favor of corporations 76% of the time. Our corporate masters do not care about abortion, gun rights, or the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman. But like the German industrialists who backed the Nazi party, they know that the Christian right will give an ideological veneer to ruthless corporate tyranny. These oligarchs view the Christian fascists the same way the German industrialists viewed the Nazis, as buffoons. They are aware that the Christian fascists will trash what is left of our anemic democracy and the ecosystem. But they also know they will make huge profits in the process, and the rights of workers and citizens will be ruthlessly suppressed. If you are poor, if you lack proper medical care, if you are paid substandard wages, if you are trapped in poverty, if you are a victim of police violence, this is because, according to the prosperity gospel, you are not a good Christian. In this belief system, you deserve what you get. There is nothing wrong these homegrown fascists preach with the structures or systems of power. Like all totalitarian movements, followers are seduced into calling for their own enslavement. As the Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels understood, the best propaganda is that which, as it were, works invisibly, penetrates the whole of life without the public having any knowledge of the propagandistic initiative. The tinder that could ignite violent conflagrations lies ominously stacked around us. It may be set off by Trump's defeat in the election. Millions of disenfranchised white Americans who see no way out of their economic and social misery, struggling with an emotional void, are seething with rage against a corrupt ruling elite and bankrupt liberal class that betrayed them. They're tired of the political stagnation, grotesque, mounting social inequality, and the punishing fallout from the pandemic. Millions more alienated young men and women also locked out of the economy, and with no realistic prospect for advancement or integration, gripped by the same emotional void, have harnessed their fury in the name of tearing down the governing structures and anti-fascism. These polarized extremes are inching closer and closer to violence. We have three options. Reform, which given the decay of, in the American body politic is impossible. Revolution or tyranny. If the corporate state is not overthrown, then America will soon become 
a naked police state where any opposition, however tepid, will be silenced with draconian censorship or force. Police in cities around the country have already thwarted the reporting by dozens of journalists covering the protests through physical force, arrests, tear gas, rubber bullets, and pepper spray. This will become normalized. The huge social divides, often built around race, will be used by the Christian fascists to set neighbor against neighbor. Armed Christian patriots will attack those groups blamed for social collapse, dissent, even nonviolent dissent, will become treason. Our ruling elites will not restore these ruptured social bonds. They will not address the deep despair that grips America. They will not respond to the climate emergency. As the country unravels, they will reach for the familiar tools of state repression and the ideological prop provided by Christian fascism. It is up to us to carry out sustained acts of nonviolent mass resistance if we mobilize in large and small ways to fight for an open society, to create communities that, as Václav Havel wrote, live in truth. We hold out the possibility of pushing back against these crisis cults. We hold out the possibility of holding at bay the brutality that accompanies social upheaval, as well as slowing and disrupting the march towards ecocide. But this requires us to acknowledge that our systems of governance are incapable of being reformed. No one in power will save us. No one but us will stand up for the vulnerable, the demonized, and the earth itself. All we do must have the single aim of crippling the power of the ruling elites in the hopes of new systems of governance that can implement the radical reforms to save us and the world. The most difficult existential dilemma we face is to at once acknowledge the bleakness before us and act, to refuse to succumb to cynicism and despair. And we will only do this through faith, the faith that the good draws to it the good, that all acts that nurture and protect life have an intrinsic power, even if the empirical evidence shows that things are getting worse. We will find our own freedom, our autonomy, our meaning, and our social bonds among those who also resist. And this will allow, allow us to endure and maybe even triumph. Thank you. Okay, so this is a, a homegrown comment with something you may have heard before, which is that your talk was a bummer. Do you think that's a barrier to your position? Well, you know, as a writer, it's not my job to sell you hope. There's lots, the country's awash in advertising and political messaging and Hollywood and, you know, just about every medium is there to sell you hope. And in fact, I find that kind of false hope 
very disempowering. Uh, I think that especially given the climate crisis, we have to recognize the emergency that it is. Uh, and we have no time left. I mean, even if we stopped all carbon emissions today, we have so much baked into the system, as I mentioned, that we're, it's unavoidable probably that we'll reach 450 parts per million, which is catastrophic. And the idea that we can adapt is as specious as the idea that climate change doesn't exist. The idea that we live in a functioning democracy or that the Democratic Party itself functions as a party is just a misreading of reality. And it is a bummer. I find no joy in it at all. But at the same time, if we allow ourselves to be self-deluded, we become utterly ineffectual. Um, We have to make a very rational, cold, and correct an analysis of the forces arrayed against us if we're going to bring them down. And I also am not going to get up and and give talks about how we're inevitably going to win and build the socialist, I am a socialist, the socialist paradise when it's not true. That's not my job as a writer. My job is to discern the truth or as best I can and lay it out uh, and call for action uh, because I believe in action against I would call them these forces of death. I don't think that's too extreme to save ourselves. I speak as a father. I have children. And, um, you know, I'm not immune to that kind of despair, but I don't want that despair to overwhelm me and make me either cynical or complacent. Uh, In the end, that resistance becomes a moral imperative. I've often said that, you know, I don't, fight fascists because I'll win. I fight fascists because they are fascists. Um, But we can't use the word hope if we don't act. And we have to act against the real centers of power, not imaginary centers of power. I also wonder if in your experience you feel like reactions to the um, truth-telling that you're weaving in with writers and um, ways of looking at the reality that's on the ground, if it feels like it falls along class lines or um, lines in the social divide? It does fall along class lines, but probably not the way you would expect, um, because it's primarily the privileged and educated classes who are least able to see. Privilege, especially white privilege or especially white male privilege, is a form of blindness. That's what privilege is. Privilege blinds you. And I spent 20 years of my life in the developing world, in places like Gaza or Central America, um, struggling as best I could to understand what it meant to be a Palestinian in the world's largest open-air prison, or what it meant to be a Salvadoran or a Guatemalan at the height of the wars and the terror and death squads that were killing between 700 and 1,000 people a month. And I speak Spanish and I speak Arabic. But I learned that as a person of privilege, as hard as I tried to grasp that reality, there was always a divide. There was always an inability because of my privilege to fully understand. And as long as I honored that divide and recognized it, 
I could have very real relationships. I teach in the prison. My students in the prison, these are college courses, uh, they are earning their BA degree through Rutgers, are far more attuned to the reality that I just laid out than students that I have taught at schools like Princeton because their privilege blinds them. So there is a class divide, um, but the class divide is one that the supposedly uh, best educated, or certainly those who come from elite educational institutions are least able to see. So given that experience, do you see a lot of what's happening with the disintegration here as being, I guess this would probably go without saying, but just to articulate it and how you see it as the war come home? The, yeah, the war machine. Sure, the war machine came home. And that's Thucydides. When he writes about the Peloponnesian War, and of course it destroyed Athenian democracy, as all empires do, because empires require centralized control. Remember that uh, empire is really the external expression of white supremacy. Um, and that's what I saw. Uh, it is the repression, subjugation of people of color, whether in the Middle East or Latin America or Africa. And the military machine, which is perhaps as an institution been uh, most responsible for the destruction of our democracy consumes so many resources. I mean, these, these wars are catastrophes. It, nobody is held accountable. Not only are they not held accountable, they're all promoted and then given lavish salaries uh, to work for defense contractors. Uh, and so you divert all of your resources uh, towards feudal and endless wars. We're talking about two decades of warfare now. And meanwhile, the country collapses. And so as the country collapses, in essence, is being hollowed out from the inside, you import the mechanisms of control used on the fringes of empire to the homeland, militarized drones, wholesale surveillance, militarized police forces, um, the suspension of basic civil liberties, habeas corpus due process, etc. All of these are familiar tactics uh, used by the empire to control what Franz Fanon would call the wretched of the earth, but they always come back, and that's why Thucydides wrote, the tyranny Athens imposed on others it finally imposed on itself. That is a characteristic of late empire. So can you speak to what you see as the trajectory of the Black Lives Matter movement and how people can support and learn? Well, I'm, I've been very encouraged by these street protests for a couple reasons. First, because of the courage that it takes to go out in the streets, not only because of the pandemic, but because of the very brutal reactions on the part of these militarized paramilitary police units. Secondly, uh, I found a political sophistication. They're not being gaslighted the way movements have been gaslighted in the past by liberal elites. They're not fooled by uh, Nancy Pelosi wearing a kente scarf or police taking the knee 
or Muriel Brower, the mayor of Washington, painting in 35-foot-tall letters, Black Lives Matter, on a road near the White House. At the same time, she calls for a $50 million increase in the police budget and the building of a $500 million new jail. Uh, they recognize that the, uh, the reforms that Joe Biden is calling for have only served to consolidate the power of the police and make them more omnipotent and more lethal, and that it is an issue of abolition. It's not an issue of reform. So they get this, that it's a systemic problem. So I've been very heartened. I mean, I, I think that that is precisely the kind of activity that gives hope, uh, that is going to make possible real change as opposed to cosmetic change. So, yeah, I, I think these, you know, a lot of these people are young. I think they're out there, and a lot of them are white. And uh, I think that's also encouraging that they've realized uh, one of the things that I sense, they've realized that in in cases like this, it's it's their role to follow, not to lead. So, yeah, I've been very encouraged by these uh, street protests. I think they're heroes. That was Chris Hedges on Beyond the Politics of Despair. He spoke in Troy, New York in mid-October. The moderator was Megan Marone. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're independent and supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week, we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media. And we have a series of programs with Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Chris Hedges on Beyond the Politics of Despair, and for our special book offer, Noam Chomsky, Requiem for the American Dream, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. We're making written transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program available to you, our listeners, free of charge. Just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Steve Pierce and the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with David Byrne with Choir, Choir, Choir singing Heroes.
to the website alternativeradio.org alternativeradio.org uh, we too are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations uh, purchase transcripts mp3s or cds of our programs so we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there hello hello what is it? CJSW. This is Crispin Glover. You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you. Thank you. 